Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, as we read verses 5 through 13. Hear now the word of God. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, on the surface, today's passage seems like a straightforward healing narrative. And yet you use even the lesson of this centurion not only to illustrate faith for us, but to remind us of the consequences if we will not have you as Savior. Help us to hear the warning and the invitation today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I I think I have pointed this out before, but there is a bit of a a problem that comes with age in the Christian faith. If If you're more than a few years into being a Christian, and I realize now that I've walked with the Lord for 20 years and I'm starting to get the gray hairs, so maybe I can consider myself one of them. But one of the struggles of being an older Christian is you become familiar with the text. You become familiar with the sermon. And it is possible for the stories to start to lose that new smell. You know the new car smell that sometimes comes when you first read the Bible and you've never seen that thing before. And sometimes we can lose that when it comes to the different narratives of the text. But there is... uh, and so sometimes those stories maybe lose their, their impact. They don't hit you the way that they once did before. It's possible. Um, but there's another way we sometimes miss the force of the text. And, and it's something that happens not with familiarity necessarily, but it's something that happens with cultural distance. So some of the stunning things that Jesus does are only stunning because of the expectations and norms of the society that he lived in. And so because we have different norms and we have different expectations, we don't see the things that he does as always being particularly trailblazing. Uh, There are things that Jesus does in the gospel, and we don't notice anything remarkable about what he does. Um, Let me show you what I mean. In the text of Matthew, we've been in the midst of this series of miracles with this remarkable theme. And I wonder if you would pick up on it if I didn't mention it. Um, last week, Jesus heals a leper. Who is this leper? This leper is somebody who's an outcast from society. 
He is somebody who doesn't belong. Uh, Next week's narrative is going to center on Peter's, the healing of Peter's mother. This is a woman. And then this week, we're looking at Jesus' work on behalf of this centurion who is what? He's a Gentile. And so from a Jewish, from our perspective, this is just three miracles, right? As as modern Americans, probably all of us, um, we just see the, the miracles as miracles. But think of it from a Jewish perspective, from a first century Jewish perspective, all of these healings are for people who are outcasts or disadvantaged on some level in some way, somebody who is not considered part of the mainstream of Jewish society. And so even from a cultural perspective, I think we realize, for example, that the leper, I think we see that the leper is a big deal because in American society, we're grossed out by body deforming diseases. And so we're very health conscious. And so that miracle seems to us to be the one of all of these that probably seems the most remarkable. Um, but we don't naturally get the, the religious dimension of that healing, for example. Or think of the healing of the woman next week. Very few of us in 2022 would think of her as socially disadvantaged. Um, American society is this place where even those of us who haven't been sucked into modern views of men and women still don't find it really remarkable that Jesus would talk to a woman, that he would spend time with a woman, or that he would lay hands on a woman. We think, of course, that's reasonable. It's good for him to do that. And yet that is not something that would have been normal for a rabbi in the first century. And so you just see these patterns, right? These, these people who are on the outside getting included by Jesus. And same thing goes for this centurion. Because this centurion may be powerful. He may be wealthy. He may have command of a hundred troops. He may even be a friend of the local Jewish people. He may have all this gravitas, all this influence. But at the end of the day, in the eyes of the Jews, he is still a Gentile. See, there's this cultural dimension to Jesus' work. What is Jesus doing? He crosses boundaries. He's not afraid to violate norms and interrupt the flow of polite society if, he, if it can help him to reach someone. And, and we see this repeatedly from Jesus. It's no different this morning. And so I'd like to break down this story into three parts. First is the faith of the Gentile. Second is the inclusion of the nations. And then third, the exclusion of the unbelieving. Uh, Jesus does this healing. We see it in verse 13, and Jesus tells him, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And then Matthew tells us that the servant was healed at that very moment. But he has his eyes higher, Matthew does, and he sees the bigger picture of what's going on here. And and some of that is is brought to us in the dialogue of Jesus and what he says when this happens. And so let's follow what Jesus does And let's see what surprises him about this man's faith. So first this morning, let's examine the faith of the Gentile. Um, Look again at verses 5 to 9. I'm not going to read all of it, but you see the centurion come forward. He says, Lord, my servant's lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Uh, Jesus says, I will come and heal him. And the centurion says, no, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And then he acknowledges that Jesus is capable of healing his servant, even from a great distance. Now, a a few things about this healing. The first is that the servant is paralyzed. We don't know what this was. It could have been polio. It may have been a stroke. It's hard for us to say with precision, given this much time and distance. 
Um, but whatever caused it was certainly beyond the best medicine of the first century, right? Which isn't saying much. So the centurion makes this appeal to him, and he does it from a place of deep necessity. So I want you to see, first of all, that the centurion comes because he needs Jesus, and he has no other hope. And second, notice the centurion uh, addresses him, and he calls him Lord. Uh, the word he uses here is kurios. He says, he says to him, Lord. Um, it's translated Lord. He's not calling him God. He's calling him Sir. He, it's a term of respect. Uh, this is a term of authority. By the way, very remarkable. Think of who this man is. This man is a centurion. Centurion mean he is, it means he is a commander of a century of soldiers. And if you know your Latin, or at least you know what a century is, a century in Latin means a hundred. He is a commander of a hundred soldiers. That is his job. That is his position. That is his title. This is a man who understands rank. He understands authority. Um, but think of this. He is the commanding officer of an occupying force in Israel. All right. There is plenty of contempt to go around on all sides, from the Roman side, from the Israel side. Whoever you are, there is plenty of reason to dislike each other, whether it's the centurion disliking Jesus and his people or whether it is the, the Jewish people despising the Romans, whatever it is. Um, the Romans didn't really respect Israel. I mean, think of, think of it. From the Roman perspective, they are the rulers of the world. Israel is like an irritating little bug in the empire. Um, this man could, in theory, just come to Jesus and say, I hear that you are a healer. Come and heal my servant. And he doesn't do that at all. Instead, he's, he comes with this incredible hum humility. He could have made demands of Jesus, or at least you would think that he would presume to give Jesus commands. Uh, but also the Jewish people had deep contempt for people like the centurion. They, they hated the Romans, right? This wasn't just a Gentile. He wasn't just a soldier. He's a commander of the soldiers. He's a commander of the very people who had made their lives completely miserable. There must have been contempt. But instead, what you see from the centurion is this deference. He has this recognition of Jesus's authority. Uh, even this Gentile can see Jesus deserves his respect. And, and it doesn't appear to be grudging respect. It, it's genuine. Uh, it's, it's so genuine that we will see in a moment that it blows Jesus away. Um, and so Jesus responds. Now, here's the thing. The ESV doesn't capture this. Um, I did my homework. I, I know you, you think I'm supposed to do my homework always on the sermon, with these sermons. But I... I did my homework on this specific passage because there's something about anytime I, I want to differ with the ESV, I think they are better translators than me. I probably should just defer to the ESV. But if you look at the Greek grammar, this is a question Jesus asks. It's not a statement. He doesn't declare that he's going to go to his house. He instead asks if he can come. He doesn't say, I will come and heal him. He actually says in the original, shall I come and heal him? And so it, it kind of helps explain why the centurion is so humble in his reply, by the way. Um, so far, the request hasn't been posed. All the centurion said is, my servant's sick. But then comes the question. And so Jesus doesn't presume to come to this Gentile's home. In fact, you don't see Jesus enter a Gentile building in all the gospel narratives until when? Until he's in the governor's headquarters in Jerusalem at his trial. So, so Jesus is not saying, I'm going to come to your house, but he asks the man if that's what he wants. 
Um, nonetheless, he is willing. And so he asks the man if that is his request. He says, are you asking me to come and heal your servant? And the reply he receives is actually, no, I'm asking you to heal from a distance. I don't even deserve to have you under my roof. Um, this man believes that Jesus can heal without even being in the room. Part of the reason this is just incredible faith is that the centurion doesn't secretly... In the ancient world, you have people who are healers. They claim to be healers, and they produce results, but maybe you don't exactly know how they're doing it. Maybe the person knows some kind of medicine. Maybe the person knows some sort of, of trick, some sort of magic, uh, not magic skill, but um, medicinal skills. Maybe this person in the guise of, me- of, of healing is actually practicing medicine of some sort. And yet this guy doesn't think that about Jesus. He says, I am sure that from a distance you can heal my servant, right? So, so there's something more there. Um, he, he, said, he said, just say the word and whatever you say, life will be given. Now, before we see Jesus's reaction, as we, as we go into point two and point three this morning, I want you to see this. The real meat of this passage is Jesus's remark after he sees the faith of this man. So, because after this, Centurion shows this level of belief. The text tells us that Jesus makes a comment. And he makes a comment first about the Gentiles and about having faith. And then second, he makes a comment about the many Jewish people who don't believe. And so what he does is he he separates humanity into two groups those who will recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and those who will experience hell. That's what he does. He separates human beings into these two groups. And so let's look at that as we move to the second point. So second, notice the inclusion of the nations. So listen to verses 10 and 11 again. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So here's the thing. Um, I'm trying to decide whether to do some homework with you. I I will do a little more homework because what what I'm afraid of is that you go and look at Luke chapter 7, and then you look at this, and you go, Something really different happens here, and you'll think that I'm trying to avoid a problem. And so I don't want to do that. I'm teaching an apologetics class tomorrow at St. Stephen's, and I would hate to look like I'm trying to run from an apologetic opportunity. So I want you to notice this. You don't have to turn there, but if you look in Luke chapter 7, Luke reveals an extra detail that we should just notice. In Luke's account of this passage, the extra detail is that the centurion himself doesn't come physically. Instead, he sends intermediaries. So he sends a group of of what Luke calls elders of the Jews to ask Jesus to heal this man's servant. So if you read Luke, this man doesn't come. And if you want to give it the worst possible reading in this passage, then the man, then the centurion does come. And you've got people who say, aha, see, you have a Bible contradiction. And therefore, I have a reason to ignore what the scripture says, right? And people are always looking for those excuses. And if you go on the internet, surely you find somebody who... We'll point out a text just like this. Um, in a society that was very hierarchical, very authority-based, uh, to send these men was to send himself. 
To send these men to speak to Jesus on his behalf was for him to come and speak to them. And so Luke tells us other information about the centurion. Apparently, he was a God-fearing Gentile. He used his wealth to help build the synagogue for the Jews. And then you might say the question, then why does Matthew leave this information out? You think, I'm interested in that. I think it's important that that be included. And I think it's possible there are a few reasons for this. One is simply for the sake of, of simplicity. Uh, one of the hardest things as a writer is to not over-explain things, uh, giving unnecessary details. You might think I'm doing that now. Um, for Luke, the fact that the Jewish leaders are sent is worth including because he's giving something closer to a shot-for-shot retelling. Luke is a historian. Luke is trying to get all those details included. He's telling a story of a miraculous healing. He's showing that Jesus has the power to heal from a distance. Matthew, however, has another agenda. Beyond simplicity, the fact that this man is a Gentile and seeking the help of this Jew tells a larger story that needs to be told. And so he's highlighting the fact that this man is coming that this man who's a Gentile comes to Jesus. Whether he does it through intermediaries is inconsequential to Matthew, and that's why he omits the extra information and streamlines the story and streamlines the narrative. And so that's what happens. He's trying to make the point that people beyond Israel are coming to God and they're going to sit at the same table as Abraham and highlighting this man's individual uh, participation here is part of that and it helps with that. And so what does Jesus do? This guy comes and he expresses faith and it says, the text says, Jesus marveled when he heard this man's expression of faith. This is the only time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is said to marvel, by the way. He doesn't marvel anywhere else in Matthew. Uh, There's plenty of marveling in Matthew. If you search for marvel, you'll find it all over the place. It's not talking about comic books. It's talking about being really blown away by something. Um, Here's the thing. In Matthew, all the marveling is done by the crowds. Jesus marvels them. And here, the centurion marvels Jesus. And so Jesus makes this comment. He makes this remark about what it is that surprises him about this man. He says, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He's saying Israel could learn a thing or two about faith from this Gentile from this outsider, from this man that they almost certainly look down on. And then Jesus says something else. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, where the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. So when Jesus says many will come from east and west, he's talking about Gentiles, right? Because in the Jewish mind, Israel, Jerusalem is the center of the universe. From them, you are either from there or you're from nowhere or you're from everywhere else. And for them, the Gentiles are the people who come from east and west, and they are the ones that everybody comes to. And so uh, people like the centurion. And he doesn't say only a few will come. He uses the word many. He says many will come. In other words, this centurion may seem to be the first, but he is far from the last. Many more like him are going to come from the nations to the east and to the west, even as far as Siberia, right? This phrase probably comes from Psalm 107.3, which Jesus says is referring to Gentiles becoming a part 
of Abraham's family. You see this theme in the Old Testament, right? This theme of Gentiles demonstrating faith, having unity with God's people. Uh, Think of, of Rahab in Joshua 6 when the spies go into Canaan. The first Gentile converted to God's people. Uh, Think of Ruth, the Gentile, the Moabite, who said to Naomi, Where you go, I will go. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth becomes as much a part of Israel as Naomi is. Jesus is saying, many have come from east and west, and he says, many more will come from east and west. There is a history of the nations being included in the people of of Abraham. And that is something that isn't going to stop. He sees faith here. He sees faith in Jesus, his faith in Christ. He trusts him. He believes in him. But also, please notice one more thing. Think of what he portrays the kingdom of heaven like. I love the illustration that he gives here. He says, many will come from east and west. And what will they do? Recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, right? He's, he's picturing a feast here. Now, in, this, in the scripture, there are all these illustrations about what, the, what it's like, what we get right now if the nations come to the Lord through faith in Christ. The Bible has different analogies for how we get included in the family of God. Paul uses the illustration of engrafting, like when a branch becomes engrafted into a different plant that it wasn't originally part of. Uh, Jesus uses the illustration of reclining at table through faith in Jesus. If you're a Gentile, and I suspect a lot of you are, I'm a Gentile, they become part of the same plant as Israel. We get engrafted into and become as much a part of it as the rest of the plant. Or to use Jesus' illustration here, through faith, what do we do? We recline at the same table as the patriarchs, not a lesser table, not the kiddie table. Right? We are at the same table. Think of that. Think of what Jesus is saying. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Through faith in Jesus, we're adopted into the family of Israel, not the secondary family, not his extended family. We are adopted into his family. All of these are illustrations of how God takes outsiders who weren't part of the kingdom, and he makes them a part of the kingdom. He's, he's describing heaven here he, in, in the sense of how we get to enjoy God right now. But there's this future dimension too, right? Through faith in Jesus, we get engrafted into, into Israel right now. And not just, not just for now, on into the future. He will be our God and, and we will be his people. We have a new family now through faith in Jesus. Jesus is picturing heaven like this like this festival banquet where we're going to recline at the same table as the great patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't miss this. Jesus is pointing at this Gentile, and he's pointing at you, and he's pointing at me, and he's saying, you may not have Jewish ancestry, you may not have physically descended from these people, but through Christ you belong at the table. And when he invites you to the table, he's not going to do it begrudgingly just because you got through on some technicality. But if you trust in Christ, then he will open the door for you and he will seat you himself and he will be glad to have you. Don't think of God as letting you in because he has to. He is letting you in because he delights to have you. 
And he delights to have you, not because, oh, look at this great guest, but because he is great and because he is gentle and because he is gracious and because our inclusion in the banquet is a demonstration of his grace and his kindness and his glory and his majesty. All the guests that come to the table say something about the one who has brought them. And we see that by design, the nations are included. I want you to also see this is not an after-the-fact thing that Christianity sort of you know, attaches to the end, sort of as an addendum. Oh, yeah, and the Gentiles are included too. You need to see it in the ministry of Jesus. And I want you to be convinced that it was built in from the beginning, even in the Old Testament. Jesus is convinced of that. He wants his disciples to see it, and he's teaching them that this morning. But third... And it's a harder note to end on. You want to end on the happy note. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. Not today. We see the exclusion of the unbelieving in verse 12. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is contrasting these two responses to his ministry, right? On the, on the one hand, he says, there are going to be many Gentiles, people who, look, who were looked down on by the Jews, who will actually come and put their faith in the Messiah. And on the other hand, he says, there are lots of people who are actually of Jewish ethnicity, descended from Abraham. They could produce the documents. They could take the 23andMe genetic test, and they'd say, hey, look, I'm... I'm one of Abraham's descendants, and they will refuse to follow the very Savior that God has sent. It would be like if Jacob's family refused to go to, go to Moses when God raised him up in Egypt. You know, if they had refused to follow Moses in Egypt, where would they be? They would still be in slavery in Egypt, right? We'd have way more pyramids. Um, what happens though? God sends an even greater deliverer than Moses. And what happens to him? They reject him. And Jesus says that these sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. He doesn't say they'll be let in because, oh, they've got the right genes. He says, no, they'll be thrown out. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We have to be careful not to think of the Jewish people in, in any sort of superstitious way. They are merely human beings like all of us. They have sin to repent of, just like you and me. A Savior has been sent and set before them. They have an opportunity to trust in him. Scripture is filled with Jewish people who do trust in the Lord Jesus. In no sense is somebody a recipient of the promise of Abraham, though, apart from faith in Jesus. That is what Jesus is saying here. It's one of the most haunting and, and terrifying pictures Jesus paints of the fate of those who refuse to do what the centurion here does. People refuse to rest in Christ. They refuse to re receive him as Savior. They put confidence in themselves, confidence in the flesh, confidence in their past, confidence in their good deeds, confidence in their good intentions, whatever it might be. And Jesus says... All unbelief, whether Gentile or Jewish, will result in being thrown into outer darkness. Anyone who doesn't bow the knee to Christ, 
will experience this. How much more tragic? It amplifies the tragedy for the very people that Jesus came to be their Savior, that they would be cast out. Jesus uses hard language here. He uses hard language to describe what happens to those who won't come to him. And that's the thing. Jesus is very beloved in our culture, he's, but it is a softened, sanitized version of Jesus that is beloved. He is beloved so long as he's the Jesus that makes the peace sign. And he tells us to love each other. But Jesus does more than that. He preaches about heaven and he preaches about hell. He believed in hell. The best man who ever lived, smartest man who ever lived, the best moral teacher who ever lived. And he said, oh, yes, hell is real. And he wanted us to know that it's real. He wanted us to believe that it is real. This man who is so beloved in the world for his teaching believed that when people die, if they do not place their faith in him, that they would bodily go to a place of outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so please don't pick and choose with Jesus. Listen to all of his words. Take all of them in. Receive his full teaching. Receive his full correction. You insult him when you pick and choose. Jesus says, if you will not experience forgiveness that is found through faith in me, then there will come a time where the final judgment will be issued and you will experience the justice that your sins deserve instead of the grace of the, of the meal at the banquet. Hell is an offensive idea to people who have been raised to believe that sin is in the eye of the beholder, people who've been taught to believe that they're basically good. But then he says, it doesn't matter what delusions you have about yourself. There's coming a day where you will have to answer and be accountable for your lives. That is very offensive. And Jesus says that unbelief means being in the outer darkness. Where God is, there's, there's light. And if you're, if you're in the outer darkness, it's a phrase, it's emphasizing the absence of God's light. The banquet will be a place of light and joy and celebration. The outer darkness will be a place where there's darkness and misery and regret. Look at the contrast. He uses another phrase here. And this isn't the only place he uses it. That phrase that he describes hell with is he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You could actually translate it as grinding of teeth. There will be weeping and grinding of teeth. The word for weeping here, it's the anguish of a funeral mourner. Grinding of teeth is an expression of the depth of misery and anguish. There's one theologian who says what Jesus describes here is a frenzy of misery, including remorse and self-loathing as a result of realizing what they have lost and what they have yet to endure. Hell will be a place of selfishness and self-focus. Uh, I have never felt greater peace than when I was taken up with the person of Jesus and had my heart filled with a sense of his kindness and his grace. Peace is found not by thinking of ourselves more, not by looking inward. That is where you find hell. And I'm not saying hell is a metaphor for selfishness, but selfishness is a part of hell. Peace is found when we are taken up with Jesus and hell will be a place of selfishness and self-focus. I heard somebody once joke that, that they are okay with going to hell because they get to hang out with Jimi Hendrix. 
Jimi Hendrix isn't going to care about you in hell. He's not. There's no one in hell who will be glad to see you. No one will receive you with open arms. There will be no human embrace. There's nobody to comfort you there. In hell, there's no savior to look to. There's no rescuer coming. There's no deliverer to hope in. The sufferer will remember himself and his life and how he lived. And he will run over time and time again into eternity all the things that he did and all the opportunities that he had to trust in the savior. And he will do nothing but descend more and more into his own heart and into his own life. And the suffering will be as excruciating as God gives people up to themselves. Jesus, the good teacher. Jesus, the preacher of peace. Jesus, the preacher of life. Jesus, the preacher of light. Jesus, the good man. Jesus, the respected religious man. Jesus, the admired holy person. Yes, this Jesus spoke a great deal about hell because it is real and because he knew its horrors. And he was going to experience its horrors on the cross. And he came to free men and women and boys and girls from ever experiencing it. Hell is a consequence of our sin. And yet Jesus hates it and he warns sinners about it. It is in God's character to warn us because he is loving. What does Ezekiel 18, 23 say? Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Jesus wants you to know about hell because it is real. And the sad reality is that no matter how many times we tell ourselves that it won't happen to me, I'll be the exception. Tell ourselves that no judgment's coming. There's, no, there's only peace waiting for us when we die. And the culture tells us that. No matter how we lived or whether we knew Christ, no matter how much we hope that it isn't true, many will experience it. And it will be no excuse in the last day for us to say, well, I heard what you said, but I didn't believe it. The reality is the thing that hits you, whether you want it to or not. And reality is coming for all of us. Think about this. The wisest, most honest, most trustworthy man who ever lived said very clearly that hell is real. And yet today is the day of salvation. You may have heard this a thousand times before. Or you may have never heard it before, but today is the day of salvation. The, the invitation is given. Uh, whether you have believed it all your life, guess what? You are being invited to believe it again. And you are being given an opportunity to recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob where the light is and where the feasting is and to become a part of the family of God by faith. The call is very straightforward. It is this, repent of your sins and turn to Christ. He is, he is here to rescue you. All you have to do is reach out with humble, empty hands. Don't set your eyes on yourself. Don't make excuses for yourself. He is giving us the warning. Today is the day of salvation. And Jesus sees the faith of this centurion. And what does he do? He says, I want all of you listening to trust me the way that this man does. Because if you don't, you will find out that the darkness is quite real. But if you do trust in me, Jesus says to each of us, you will dine at table with the patriarchs in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your words today 
are at once full of warning. You warn us with sternness and sincerity of the truth that judgment is real if we will not take shelter in the Savior. At the same time, you speak with an invitation of warmth and kindness. The idea that we could know the comfort of the feast, that that we could be invited not only to dine with the patriarchs, but to share a table with you. What an indescribable and unimaginable joy. I pray for those here today, for all of us, that we would repent, that that those of us who have repented, that we would keep repenting. That we wouldn't hold on to our sin, that we wouldn't hold on to our selfishness or our self-centeredness that you would cause us to fix our gaze on Jesus and that he would be the center of our life so that we could know what it is to have your peace and to feast with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.